3: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al,
0: the FT's food
3: and drink editor. And I'm one of the commissioning editors on the Arts Desk.
0: This week, we'll ask two experts from the world of hip-hop what it takes to make it as a rapper in 2018.
3: And later, we'll hear from Thomas Page-McBee, who I met earlier this week. He's an American writer and journalist and the first trans man to fight a boxing match at Madison Square
0: Gardens. So, Grizz, we've been away for, but well, I was away on a holiday in Wiltshire.
3: Mm-hmm. How, was that lovely?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was Wiltshire. <laughs> it was lovely. just It's yeah. trees and <laughs> there was a lake and it went as well as could be hoped for until I took the, the recycling out at the end and I got stung by a wasp. Um, and then my hand is now swollen up, if you can see it. It's and you had another piece of bad. bad luck. I did. Um, Quite
3: significant bad luck.
0: On my wife's birthday, we got burgled, which is um, never happened to me before. Yeah. But it was—they um, took every electrical item we had, apart from half of the baby monitor. <laughs> they um, didn't fancy that. And they took the car. Um, Shit. And yes, yeah, it it's it a slightly spooky thing. But anyway, the, luckily the police closed the case within twenty hours of it being reported. So Having investigated it thoroughly, they went I'm through sure. it with a with a. <laughs> Um, with a fine comb and decided that there were no leads um, even though I mean come on they nicked the bloody car you would have thought they would be able to follow it it. (laughs) if it was MI6 they would find our car they're like oh no they would have taken the plates Um, we haven't got a chance on this one you know I hope you're insured
3: so it's been a it's been a rubbish week for you it's been a pretty rubbish week for just anyone living in Britain or at least a pretty weird week
0: yeah, I, I think mean, I I think I'm as tired as <laughs> as Theresa May looks. The government's collapsing.
3: No one knows what's going on. I mean, probably by the time this goes out, 24 hours after it's recorded, you know, everything could have changed.
0: It, exactly. There may be no more podcasts. I did have one very good thing happen to me though. Oh yeah, okay,
3: good. Tell me that.
0: Um last night I got I, I went to a PR's house for dinner where a double Michelin-starred chef called Gennaro Esposito cooked one of his dishes, was simply a white truffle risotto. And it was light and full of depth and flavour and subtlety and it was remarkable (laughs) in every (laughs) every possible way. But inside it um, was this perfectly formed egg yolk. I nearly started crying and it really was, (laughs) yeah, it was an emotional thing.
3: And I've spent the last three weeks mostly watching Making a Murderer Part Two, which... I decided to I avoid Don't that. recommend. Yeah. Did you watch part 1? Yeah, I loved part 1, yeah. but then I
0: got so frustrated by the the real story and then realized that that story hasn't moved on. So, yeah. I got terribly upset.
3: <laughs> there's nothing. There's literally nothing to report. The material is so stretched over the 10 hours or 12 hours or whatever it was. I did I mean, I have to admit I watched the whole thing obviously, but total waste of time. Don't start it.
0: Do you still think he's innocent?
3: Yeah, i think he's innocent but i mean if something had happened in the real world we would have heard about it which is why it's difficult to make a documentary about someone who has become famous from a documentary i mean it doesn't Indeed. it doesn't yeah, work no, anymore, i obsessively so, yeah. was following the story for mm, months afterwards
0: mm. but then just thought well that ship has sailed
3: <laughs> so uh, moving on from wiltshire this week we are talking about hip-hop which last year overtook rock as the most popular genre of music in America. It, and so um, it should. And so it should. It dominates streaming platforms, charts, the radio. It's merged with so many other genres of music.
0: And more and more rappers are trying to make it. Coming into t- the studio will be Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, the FT's pop critic. And he's written a piece in this week's Life and Arts section of FT Weekend that looks at the changing landscape of hip-hop and how these young artists are trying to navigate it.
3: And things like the role of the producer, the role of the record label, is that still a thing? Was it ever a thing for rappers and the
0: beatmaker?
3: And the beatmaker exactly. And we have a beatmaker coming in, uh, the producer Chris During,
0: who is one half of the beatmaker duo Mutual Sounds with his brother Ricky,
3: as well as Ludo who'll also be joining us. So, Chris and Ludo, thanks for joining us. Oh, pleasure. pleasure. So, Ludo, in your piece, you you discuss sort of what it's like to start out as a rapper nowadays and what the different challenges are. Can you say something about how it's different to say if I wanted to be a, a pop singer?
2: Yes, I, I came to it, I suppose, thinking about how talent comes through and thinking about it very much from a rock music background which I suppose is one Mm -hmm. which I have going back and thinking about bands coming together and slogging around the sort of dingy dives of whichever live circuit it might be and being spotted by A&R people and then signing a record deal and then from that record deal putting out their album and so on and so forth and in uh, hip-hop it's really quite different obviously there are record labels involved there is a live circuit but the way in which it's sort of uh, construed now is much more based around online for instance instance and Mm -hmm. so it will be done via being able to go and sort of track down and source your music on the internet buying your beats from Mm -hmm. a producer and we'll hear more from chris about that and then you have to just like basically do a lot of the work that a record label might have done for you in the past you have to go out and market yourself and sell yourself i mean it sounds really quite exhausting so it's more
3: about self-sufficiency
2: there's a self-sufficiency going on exactly that you then go and have to find your audience before you could take it to the next level it's like a ladder with every single step worked out according to your expanding audience which you're supposed to be finding yourself before someone will actually help you because then you become a worthwhile investment I suppose
0: so Chris you sell beats
1: to rappers online how does that work so the way we started is uh, we created a website and uploaded all our beats and what an artist can do is come on the website, pay for the beat. And then they're emailed a link to like an MP3 file. And then they can create a track just using our instrumental. And you've just come up with these beats at home. Like- yeah. So um, I actually started rapping when I was younger, maybe 14, 15, started writing my own lyrics. And then I, I came across a software that had samples, different instruments, and you could piece them together and make a complete instrumental. And then I would actually rap over them. And my brother who does production with me as well, uh, Ricky, he used to watch me. And then in 2012, we decided that we would start collaborating together. So the way we work is he makes instrumentals on his own and I make instrumentals on my own, but then at the same time we'll come together. We might have an unfinished one and we might go in a different direction because we both have different perspectives and we literally make them in our bedrooms. One tool we use a lot right now is Instagram. So what we do is we upload a a little clip of the instrumental and then off that, we've got a link to our website on our bio. Sometimes we'll get purchases from say, rappers or singers in America. We might not even know once the track is made why so, can't they just steal your beat? Good question. So the way we do it is um, with tags. So maybe every 15, 30 seconds, there's a tag on it. Couldn't everywhere. they try
2: and copy the pat the drum pattern, for instance, though? They
1: could. Um, in general, a lot of music is copied in a in sense. I think with technology these, these days, it is easy for people to kind of replicate songs and, and instrumentals. But... I'd like to hope that we have Mm. our own spin on it and our own, you know, we have our own technique in how we do things and and what we hear.
3: And do you and Ricky, as Mutual Sounds, see yourselves as beat makers or as producers, or is that not a real distinction?
1: Um, So I think when we started out, we were more focused on being beat makers. The way I would define it is beat maker typically works on the instrumental So the drums, the instruments in the background, and then you'd have the artist who would then write lyrics and maybe sing or rap on the instrumental. Whereas the producer makes it all come together, they might be in the studio, they might have a beat maker who actually makes the beat, and then they maybe give them some direction, maybe take this instrument out or add this on. So it's kind of about the level of involvement? yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I think when starting out, we were more beat makers because we just made the beats put them online and kind of hoped that artists would find them and use them whereas more recently we've been trying to focus on actually finding artists to work with and maybe develop artists
3: so chris we're gonna hear a track solitude from your latest ep Mm -hmm. which was released was it last month
1: uh yeah so october the fifth
3: and this track is called solitude
1: So Solitude and the Blue Dream EP uh, was basically an EP that Ricky and I created together. And it's a combination of instrumentals that uh, Ricky made individually, I made individually, and then some instrumentals that we made together. That was actually an instrumental that Ricky made. And it's a combination of vocals that he's found. I'm not 100% sure where. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then he's obviously got the drums and then a few instruments that come in uh, later on. But I think one of the fundamentals with being a beat maker and what a lot of people don't realise about the whole process is as a beat maker, you can actually bring out an album with just instrumentals, whereas an artist can't bring out an album with acapellas. Why so not? <laughs> well, I've never come across an album with just acapellas, with, with just vocals. but yeah, just vocals. So good, no? you could, you could do, but um, It'd be tricky. it would be, it would yeah, it would be, uh, I think it, the first person to do it would probably get a lot, lots of publicity. Um, the second but, person to yeah, yeah, exactly, so it wouldn't be listened yeah, yeah. to. But, but this
3: kind of taps into something that your piece is sort of about, which is like the role of the producer mm-hmm. and you Know this isn't a new trend, but mm-hmm. the producer as this kind of much more powerful person than back in the day. Well, that's yeah.
2: that's right. I, well, I, I think so. Back in the day, the producer and the rapper were very much a unit, and mm. that you would have them working together, and that the, mm. the person doing the words would be sort of um, inspired by the person providing the beats and vice versa so you would have someone let's say like Eric B and Rakim a great duo Mm -hmm. from the 80s, a sort of foundational duo in in rap and in that uh, Eric B was the producer, Rakim was the uh, rapper Mm -hmm. and the two went together, their names were joined and in Mm -hmm. fact their very first single in 1986 was called Eric B is President not Rakim, so that was just like foregrounding Mm -hmm. that role of the producer, it was the idea that they they were sort of linked together, that they were a unit, they were a duo, or they might be a, a, a group like the Bomb Squad with Public Enemy. And it became later on that the producer became sort of delinked
3: should we have a listen to Eric B and Racoon? Yes. This is Don't Sweat the Technique. I made my debut in 86 With a melody and a
0: president's mix And I stay on target and refuse to miss And I still make hits and beats Parties, clubs, and cars and jeeps My underground sound, I race the streets MCs want to beef and I play for keeps when they sweat the technique.
2: So there we have the example of... A- how it was more at the beginning but i suppose that there were less beats i mean to yeah. say that there was a much more standard style eric b was a you know great great producer but nowadays i'm sure chris you would ag- agree that there's so many different varieties of mood and texture and sound because and style that you all well, yeah. notice also the way the music's developed that was what 35 years ago or something yeah. now you just have all of these different styles of subgenres. i mean is that you must feel that there's any number of styles that you can yeah. draw on
1: yeah hundred percent i think um because of the way technology is now, there's lots of styles, there's lots of people making beats. I mean, a rapper, a singer can now get some software on their laptop PC and make their own beats, which can be a good thing and a bad thing at the same time, because I think it's almost a little bit diluted in the sense that anyone can now create a song and upload it.
3: So do you think that has implications for the quality?
1: I feel like it does. I think there was a lot more thought process that went into music, the rapper would have had to run the lyrics by the beat maker before actually recording them and they would have tweaked it until it was perfect. Whereas I think now, especially with the fact that beat makers can just sell their instrumentals on, online and, and stuff like that, the rapper can almost buy the beat, record their song and just upload it and there's no one to actually give it any kind of direction, which it's not necessarily a bad thing because I think everyone should be entitled to create and and put music out but it can be the difference between music from the past that is um, evergreen is exciting for a couple of weeks and then everyone forgets Mm. about it So if I want to buy a beat from Mm -hmm. Mutual Sounds how much is that going to set me back? (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's talking business.
1: <laughs> so, so, so at the moment, we have two uh, licenses. We have a lease called the non-exclusive lease. Um, you pay £30 for the instrumental. You get to use the instrumental. And the difference between that lease and the exclusive lease is we can actually continue to license that instrumental.
3: So other people we can, can continue keep to buying exactly. It.
2: Yeah. It's interesting to see, the, because the market for beats, I mean, it's not less like brand new. I mean, it does yeah. go back. So mm. for instance, that uh, the Jay-Z song based upon the Annie sample, yeah. It's a Hard Knock Life. Yeah. Yeah. That was a story about that, about how Jay-Z had loved Annie. He went to see it as a kid. It was just like a great inspirational musical. It was nothing of the sort. He heard the beat <laughs> somewhere. He liked it so much, he really wanted it. But this beat was very much in sought after by mm. New York rappers of the day. And he had mm. to pay something like $10,000 Reputedly, mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to get hold of it, so there, were, there was a market for buying beats mm. that you particularly liked, but it was only later on with the arrival of the internet that one can yeah. see yeah. a yeah. Total, total transformation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, one day, but um, yeah, exactly. I mean, some of my influences are Dr. Dre, Kanye West, Pharrell, like Farewell's probably my, my favorite. I mean, a lot of the music that came out in like 2000. 2003 like Justin Timberlake he made he made he produced a few songs for Britney Spears there was just a, a period of time where it was just his uh, beats the Neptunes, him and Chad Hugo there was a time when it was just their beats on the radio and I think um yeah like they're probably commanding I think mm-hmm. maybe six figures for, mm. for, for beats now
3: I mean things have changed massively because mm-hmm. of because of the internet and because of social media. I mean, what, how important is it that an influencer like, picks up what you're doing and, and kind of promotes it?
1: It's really important now because um, if you don't know how to market properly, you can really get forgotten about, especially in, in terms of like beat makers, for example. There's so many beat makers and it's a case of artists don't really have the problem of how to obtain beats now. Um, they can literally do a Google search and it will come up with tons of websites. Now it's a more a case of uh, figuring out how social media works.
3: Kind of how to get seen and exactly. heard. Exactly, yeah. how
1: to rank on Google, uh, how to get tons of followers on, on Instagram, um, how to get your posts showing up, so paying for advertising, things like that. I think that's where it's at now. And do you, um,
3: are you kind of, Influenced by influencers in what you listen to, are there people who, like, if they're saying this is really good, you'll go and like try it out? Um,
1: I think I'm 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 a bit of a weird one. I still listen to a lot of the the music I listened to um, growing up, so, so sort of a lot before of nin- social media. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I I listen to a I still listen to a lot of the '90s R&B and hip hop, um, and I think a lot of my instrumentals, especially, are. Um, kind of influenced by that era, I just feel like a lot of uh, I just feel like a lot of the music that comes out nowadays isn't as as i was saying evergreen as mm. as the music from the past.
3: What do you think, Rita? Like? <laughs> as the FT's pop critic, do you, um, do you agree with that?
1: Well, I wouldn't want
2: to dispute with our expert here, Chris, <laughs> about the about the the difference. Well I would have a soft spot for that era as well, it's true to say. Um I I think that I don't I don't think that it's no, I don't I think that <laughs> the stuff today could also be just as good as was before. In fact we could listen to a song from today, could we not? There are still beat makers, producers, I think, um, who will work solely or predominantly with one rapper that relationship still exists the one that I mentioned earlier between Eric B and Rakim still exists now um, even within the context of all of uh, these um, uh, different like freelancers if you like all around the place and we have an example of one from one of the sort of um, uh, rising stars of uh, um, UK hip-hop
0: Jay Huss.
2: Now, the uh, producer there helping Jay Huss make his six-figure moves is um, J5, who has been very key in his development... As an MC, and um, the two work together. And they're not alone in that. There are others, like Drake, for instance, was um, really uh, launched, has a very close collaborator called Noah 40 Shabib. And he's someone who's completely molded his sound. You know, and you realize that um, that the rapper often will require someone to be able to come up with some way in which to go and sort of uh, structure their thoughts, their words. And that when two do come together, you can create this really good synthesis of just like the perfect sound you feel, which comes through, which we can hear there that. Particular style is really very sort of uh, dominant now in, in terms of how music in in, in Britain is sounding. I um, mean, Chris, have you ever sort of would you like to having been you know a rapper mm-hmm. back before? Yeah. Would you like to? Could you imagine yourself working just like one person?
1: Yeah, I mean, ideally, that's um, that's the direction we're moving into now. So, for example, uh, i are working with a singer called Jade Fabara but we've just literally started uh, working with her. So we've got some tracks that we went to the studio and started getting recorded with our instrumentals. Um, And I think that's always been part of the dream for us. It's bliss when you're in the studio with an artist and you're creating together. As a a beat maker or producer, you can't really describe the feeling you get when after listening to your, your instrumental for, a hundred times with no vocals on it finally hearing vocals on it it's it's a feeling that you can't describe because it sounds it sounds complete
2: and i guess you then have to I mean the temptation would be to go and do the vocals yourself like pharrell yeah, did ex- himself. yeah. I mean, he did, he's <laughs> someone who went and sort of jumped on his own songs in the end and there must have been i can imagine with him a thought well i'm making
1: all of these amazing beats yeah why don't i yeah, have them for myself exactly exactly and i think that's part of the frustration because i think maybe if you look at um, a lot of beat makers narratives um, there will be that frustration where you're making all these beats and either no one's buying them or no one's using them so they take matters into their own hands I put out a really depressed and angry <laughs> rap <laughs> over their own beats which yeah. gets really big and then the next thing is their they're, dead they're stars. yeah exactly
3: <laughs> <laughs> thank you Chris so much for coming in and thank you Ludo oh, thank,
1: thank you, you very, very much. much yeah thank you
0: can you wrap up rapping can i rap no is <laughs> the answer to that well that's good i now know a lot more about rap and making beats than i did before
3: you're an expert well no chris is the expert
0: no i think i'm an expert too now <laughs> and our listeners will be as well so earlier this week you were chatting with thomas page mcb mm-hmm. who is he
3: Thomas uh, was the first trans man to box at Madison Square Gardens which is a pretty big deal and that's
0: a very big deal terrifying did anyone watch it
3: yeah I mean thousands I would imagine so this watched was a him.
0: professional bout
3: um no he I mean he's not a professional so he's a journalist he's a writer and um, how did he get to and he box did this there? so it was a charity it was a charity okay. match but he only had a matter of months to prepare and basically had a coach, uh, joined a boxing gym, and did this full time for several months in the lead up to. Did he win? Well, you have to find out by reading the book. So he He does his new book, Amateur, is. I mean, it's a study of lots of things. It's a study of masculinity, but it's sort of told through the story of his boxing match and okay. him preparing for Staying it. Staying
0: with the boxing match mm-hmm. for one second, he didn't get knocked out in the first round it would be difficult to write the whole book about it if he did. I'm just
3: guessing. No, all I'm
0: going to say is he did well. Well, that's excellent. This is a (laughs) a good news podcast.
3: No, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not a boxer and he's not... um, Well, he is now. He's not pretending to be, you know, it was a charity amateur match and he was doing it, I think, as a way of kind of exploring what he well, what's called toxic masculinity, which is quite timely, actually. It is indeed, because
0: (laughs) the Oxford English Dictionary's word of the year is toxic, as was announced this morning.
3: It's interesting because he's looking kind of, as a journalist, at the idea of toxic masculinity and talking to sociologists and biologists, but he's also kind of looking inside himself, and he felt like, for him, boxing was a way of coming to terms with his masculinity.
0: So this taps into some hot contemporary issues, not least Donald Trump's persecution of transgender people, but also broader sort of culture wars about gender.
3: Yeah, definitely. and I think it kind of goes to the heart of what of how you define gender, what you think men and women should be, what their roles are, whether that's a spectrum. And these things have become, yeah, kind of um, touchstones for like, what side of the divide you're on, you know, which is, and the nature of I think the debate ridiculous.
0: is, dare I say, toxic. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely toxic.
3: Yeah, and, and toxic and, and dangerous, um, but very much present in kind of contemporary discourse.
0: Great. Let's listen to the interview. He started by reading an extract from his book, Amateur, The True Story About What Makes a Man.
4: Uh, so I'm going to read a, a bit from the first section of my book. Why do men fight? What makes some of us want to get hit in the face? What makes others show up to watch? What makes a man? When I first began injecting testosterone, I was 30 years old and needed to become beautiful to myself. I clocked my becoming primarily in aesthetic terms, the t-shirt that now fit me, the graceful curl of a bicep, the glorious sprinkle of a beard. I loved the way men looked and smelled and held themselves. I loved their lank and bulk and ease, their straight razor barbershop shaves, their chest-first centers of balance. I loved the quiet efficiency of the men's restroom, the ineffable physical joy of running alongside my brother, the shadows we cut against the buildings we passed. I loved being a man, and that I loved having a body. I had surgery to reconstruct my chest. I stuck a long needle into the meat of my thigh each week. I changed my name and my place in the world, Also, I could quit hiding behind pulled-low baseball hats and rash guards, free to pull off my shirt and jump right into the waves. The joys I found at first were daily, simple, and rooted in the warm physicality of a new freedom. Toweling off after a shower and catching a glimpse of my flat chest in a foggy mirror. The way my clothes suddenly fit, my squarer shoulders and slimmer hips. The extra muscle mass that squared my walk, broadened my hands, my calves, my throat. I touched the dip of my abs, half naked in the bathroom, and the muscle and skin sinked in the mirror. I turned and he turned. I smiled and he smiled. I expanded, and so did he. Stories about trans people, when we hear them at all, often end with such shining symbolism, meant to indicate that the man or woman in question has succeeded in the transition, in the grand task of finally being themselves. Though that's lovely, and even a little true in the same way a pregnancy or a near-death experience can act on the body like gravity, reshaping our days and memories, and even time, around its impact, it isn't where my story ends. Not even close. I am a beginner, a man born at 30, with a body that reveals a reality about being human that is rarely examined. Most of us experience gender conditioning so young, research shows it begins in infancy, that we misunderstand the relationship between nature and nurture, culture and biology, fitting in and being oneself. This book is an attempt to pull apart those strands. It also became, as I wrote it, a kind of personal insurance, a way to track and shape my own becoming, in a culture where so many men are poisonous, I, too, come from a long line of poisonous men.
3: Thomas, thank you so much for reading that. Of course. And welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So in that passage, you describe yourself as a, as a man born at 30. And I wonder, can you tell us, was there a moment that made you want to kind of undergo this rebirth, to transition?
4: Mm, no, no. There wasn't one moment. There wasn't a single moment. No. I kind of think all transitions happen the same, don't you? Like, Mm. you know, there's no one moment where we realize anything. I think it's sort of a false idea of the epiphany, Mm. sort of a movie trope or something. That life is more gradual than that. Of course, yeah. For me, what was interesting about my own experience of gender growing up was that I was actually very... I think I had a very expansive idea about gender. I grew up in a household where... My mom was a glass ceiling breaking physicist who really like gave me a lot of freedom around being whoever I was. And so I didn't have like a super essentialist idea about what being anything meant. And what was kind of a challenge actually, it was as I got older and I I kind of was coming into my body and realizing how uncomfortable I was. It was a challenge because I, I my worldview was like, was challenged by that idea. And so experiencing that dissonance over time, it took many years of it for it to build up to the point where I was like, I'm genuinely experiencing a level of just discomfort and dysphoria that i have to address it's so true often when we do hear trans
3: narratives they're this idea of i was born in the wrong body Mm -hmm. i underwent surgery finally i'm myself Mm -hmm. and you know the implication is kind of happily ever after Mm -hmm. whereas of course you know, that's not the whole story in anyone's life.
4: No, and I find it very othering. It makes us sound like aliens. Like, you know, like, I came from this other planet. And I like made <laughs> now this, I'm one of yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and I think, you know, for me especially, a lot of my transition, my actual first couple years of transitioning were in this kind of smaller city in, in America, in Rhode Island, where I didn't have a community of people who were having the same experience. So I had to find people I had commonality with. So a lot of my writing I think has actually been informed by my relationships with my friends who were pregnant, who were going through their own big transitions mm-hmm. and who I had to like who we connected a lot around hormones and like going into a situation where you hope it's the right thing to do, but you don't know until you've done it. And once you've done it, it's kind of irreversible <laughs> and like, you know, um, and yeah. Just other life milestones that are like, there's so many transitions that happen in our Mm. life. I mean, even negative changes. It's like we've all either moved across the country or gotten married or gotten divorced or had a child or like had someone die in our lives. Mm. And these big changes Mm. change you fundamentally. I don't think there's any massive difference between that at the human level Mm. and what I've experienced.
3: Mm. One of the changes that you write about that I found so interesting was, you know, you describe it as male socialization. So the kind of social conditioning Mm -hmm. that cisgender men, you know, receive throughout their whole lives. Mm -hmm. But that process for you was later and faster, a sort of speeded up version in a sense. Mm -hmm. Can you say something about what that was like?
4: Yeah. For a long time, I thought it was a I felt like I'd missed out on something once I was comfortable in my body, I really felt like, wow, there's a lot of years I didn't get to feel comfortable in my body. And so that felt kind of sad to me. On the other hand though, what I was able to notice because I was an adult who had lived a whole life, like was, you know, the fish don't know the water is wet kind of thing. So like, as soon as I was six months on testosterone, like the amount of privileges I experienced were so abrupt. And frankly, enraging, <laughs> uh, and and also you know just upsetting and strange, and obviously of benefit. But like you know, in terms of work, like the idea that I could speak and a room would be silenced by my voice, that people didn't interrupt me anymore, that like if I walked alone at night on the street, I wasn't scared. But women were scared of me, you know, like if I. If, so your,
3: your basic relationships. Yes. Just- Everyday interactions Everyday interactions.
4: The downsides were also really alarming. Like, you know, sociologists call it the man box, but there are ways that men are socialized to behave Mm. in boyhood, which is sort of my broader point, which is that I became glad I didn't have a boyhood. Because I think once I was reporting out this book, every person I spoke to pointed me back to boys. Like, if you want to understand how masculinity can become toxic, you have to look at how we culture and culture our boys to believe that being a man is toxic.
3: So, so what do we mean when we talk about toxic
4: masculinity? I'm really glad you asked, because I think that this is a term people misunderstand a lot. It's not a descriptor of masculinity as a whole. And the best way to sort of illustrate this, the idea of toxic masculinity, is... In middle schools all over the US and Canada, probably here in the UK too, they do this exercise with like 10 to 12 year old boys where they draw a box on the board and they say, this is the man box. Like, what do you need to put in this box to be a man? And so they always put the same stuff. It's like being powerful, not showing feelings. Ultimately, they don't say this, but like, dominating women being strong being silent like all of that sort of thing and then they ask well what what doesn't fit in here and then it's stuff like being vulnerable um showing weakness crying like so what the nyu psychologist niobe way calls anything that makes you human goes outside the box and everything that um doesn't (laughs) goes inside the box (laughs) so when we talk about toxic masculinity we're talking about a set of traits that that are socialized traits they're not innate it's a thing we're all complicit in as a culture and i think like as i came to understand that i had avoided that and therefore what was really bothering me as i was in my 30s was being like i don't want to as i become the person i am i don't want to lose sight of everything i've like gained and so i think a lot of my socialization was figuring out first of all what's happening and second of all how do i stop it from happening mm. <laughs> you know
3: you mean how do i kind of curb these privileges or check uh, them is that curb the
4: privileges or? and also don't lose touch with my empathy don't lose touch with my sense of humanity mm-hmm. so that i can appear real yeah. and not be policed by men who are saying why are you doing this or why are you not behaving more this way or mm. or not just men everyone in culture yeah <laughs>
3: no it's true and one of the things your book made me think of actually and i think you quote a professor who says actually these aren't her words but the implication is that we all are complicit in a kind of sexism because we all have different expectations of men Mm -hmm. and women and the way that they take up space and the way that they behave. Yes, And so it's not just the work of men or just the work of women to sort of undo this.
4: Right. I think that the work is to understand that gender is a thing we all have. And like it's very innate for most of us in our sense of self. But if we have a problem with the way that men behave, it's not enough to say... Oh, I'm not that kind of guy because really if it's such a universal problem we need to look at why are men behaving this way. It's interesting though because in lots of ways
3: nowadays I mean it's there's overt misogyny of course but thinking about my own life I think I'm you know it's a privilege that actually overt misogyny is not part of my daily life mm-hmm. but I think instead there is a kind of atmospheric sexism or something that's kind of I mean I was just thinking this morning I was I was cycling into work. It was raining and the sort of, I guess the visibility wasn't very good. There were a couple of times where a pedestrian stepped out in front of me. There was a woman who said, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I sort of held up her hands mm-hmm. like this um, and stepped back. <laughs> and then there was a man who stood out in front of me. I sort of braked quite hard. And he said, oh, mm, no. And then, then gestured to me as if to say, it's your road, it's your <laughs> road. I, I give you permission to use this right. road, which uh-huh. was your right of way. Yes. And I was like... Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah,
4: that's what it is. It's, it's, a, it's
3: a way of being in public space,
4: right? And he was maintaining his power, and that's called benign sexism. You know, he there's said the, it
3: with a smile. Yes, yeah. But
4: there's the overt sexism, and there's the benign sexism, and some people would argue the benign sexism is more dangerous because this idea that there are good men and bad men is something that pretty much everyone I talk to is like, this is one of the worst conceptions of how to have this conversation because right. if you're a good, first of all, for there to be good men, there have to be bad men. So it's a binary that is, it forces those things to exist. And also, like, plenty of good men are benignly sexist because, again, it's a socialized way of being in the world. You can't escape it. I had to face my own sexism, you mm, know, in, in this process. women are sexist. Yes, of course, Like mm. because we internalize the yeah. ways that we're Taught about power,
3: and how much of um how much of masculinity is to do with testosterone. I'm re- I'm really interested in your experience of mm. injecting testosterone and how. Did it change your behavior, your mood?
4: Yeah, I was so worried about that. And with this book, kind of the fundamental question question is like, is there something innate about aggression and and masculinity, and therefore, is there something hormonal? Is there something about testosterone that makes us aggressive? And I was really fascinated to talk to Robert Sapolsky, who's a you know the famed neuroscientist from Stanford, who answer my question by explaining that um, there are no aggression receptors in the brain, uh, so that's not actually a thing. It's one of the biggest myths about testosterone. But testosterone does cause us to be status-seeking. So therefore, they run economic games in Stanford where um, the goal of the game is to win. You have to be cooperative. And so the men who were the most cooperative were the men with the highest testosterone levels. However, when they gave men placebos and shots and told them it was testosterone, those men then became very aggressive. The concept of testosterone Mm. changed their behavior. So no, testosterone doesn't make us aggressive. I think my own experience, uh, it's not like I inject a shot of testosterone and suddenly feel (laughs) primal or something like, you know, but I do think that the way my body is received by culture is very different.
3: And let's talk about the, the boxing, which is, mm-hmm. which is what this book is the story of. What made you want to do that?
4: Yeah, so very relatedly, like, you know, I'd been reporting on the masculinity crisis for several years uh, after my transition. And then my mom passed away in 2014. And then that summer, I was sort of in, in, in the throes of my grief and kind of walking around New York. And to be fair, I guess I was walking around probably with a agitated vibe. <laughs> um, and three months in a row, every month, a guy tried to street fight me in New York. And I don't know if it was because I just seemed agitated. And I, to be fair, I seemed agitated because I was in grief, but I couldn't express it. And so I think that's all just sort of culminated into this like final moment where this guy tried to fight me. And I I really felt this desire to be in this fight with this guy. And I was watching him and thinking, like, I'm just going to become this guy. Like, if I don't figure out how to behave in a way that matches my s- moral compass, I'm just going to become like every other man that, you know, does this sort of thing.
3: Do you think, is it too reductive to say that for lots of the men that you encountered at the boxing gym, that, that boxing was a kind of therapy?
4: Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I don't think that's why most of them started it. Or at least <laughs> you unconsciously. Yes, yeah, not unconsciously. Not Yeah, exactly. But I think... I think that it was therapeutic because what was so surprising, and I think the biggest thing that I didn't expect, was that, as I later learned from sociologists, this idea of the cover of violence meant that there was no masculinity threat, which is sort of the reason why men behave in ways that are what we would call toxic. A lot of that comes from feeling threatened in their masculinity, which is based on the lie that masculinity can be taken away from you, which is not true.
3: So in a way, like (laughs) acting out, or not acting out, but actually like enacting this kind of a aggression or violence or just like physical exertion that was like freeing up the side of them that could be
4: empathetic or like
3: hug a guy.
4: Right. I don't even think it's the physical act of anything. I think it's the association of boxing with masculinity created this sense of like, no one's going to question my masculinity. I can just be the person I am. Like, I wasn't a very good boxer, but like from the get go, (laughs) it was like I had this team that was, I was immediately welcomed into of people who just wanted to see me succeed. I realized a big part of boxing culture is even though it's a very individual support, it really requires an informal network of people who are willing to like work with you mm-hmm. and help you see your weaknesses and turn those weaknesses into strengths. Like you can't even cover those weaknesses because you're so exposed. It was sad that it, to me that it required that level of like cover Mm. but also it gave me a lot of hope that there was a lot of potential for different kinds of relationships than the ones I was used to having with the men in my life.
3: What was the reason why you didn't tell these men that you were trans when you first started boxing?
4: Mm. Uh, I had two reasons. One was I I didn't know what I was walking into so I didn't want to put myself at risk in any way. It's Mm -hmm. like hours and hours together in a gym. I didn't know who I was working with or what people's opinions might be. So, I, it was a self-protective measure, and it was also I really wanted to not have that be the mediating lens through which I was being seen as a person who's been out about being trans my whole the whole time.
3: So, correct me if this is wrong, but from what I've read, the trans population of the US is like very low, something around 1%. Mm-hmm. I mean, There shouldn't be any hatred, but the hatred that's directed towards trans people, considering the size of this population is completely disproportionate. Mm -hmm. I wonder where that sense of threat that some people feel comes from. Mm. I mean, what's the what's the fear? Do you think it taps into something about gender norms? Oh, yeah. (laughs) what, (laughs) What do you think it is?
4: I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I think this idea of trans people as a metaphor for something else because it's the only explanation, right? We're one percent of the population. It's challenging to understand why anyone cares, you know, about this as like some sort of broader social issue, unless if you put it in the context of gender broadly. We are in a gender culture war. I mean, that's just true. Like we've got the the Great Recession, which led to the masculinity right. crisis. Like if you think about again that box of domination as a definition for one's manhood and identity and mm-hmm. then you look at the rise of nationalism and all the things that are happening these are all connected things so trans people i think are just a straw man you know when people are stressed about like the ch- way gender has changed over time and who's in power and how power is changing it's become this metaphor to hold a cultural gender anxiety mm-hmm. and a way to Decide what side people are on in that conversation, with a really dehumanizing undercurrent of forgetting that there's a lot of people whose real lives are at risk by these conversations. We have a higher population, you know, higher suicide risk than any other population. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people are met with violence on a regular basis. So I think it's irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) But also, I do think it's something about worth looking at in our people who aren't trans, looking at in ourselves, like why, yeah, why the obsession. I and mean, finally, um,
3: the situation in the U.S. right now and Trump's kind of systematic attack on, on transgender rights. I mean, how, how do you feel about the country you live in now? Do you feel more hopeful after the midterms, for example?
4: Um, yes. Like many people, I think Trump's a national embarrassment. I think he's dangerous and his base is really dangerous. And I think I'm more worried and maybe the midterms have been a bomb a little bit for this, but like I, I've been more worried about the people who are sort of the bystandery people in the middle who kind of are standing back and sort of saying like, well, I don't know, like about Trump's sort of human rights stuff in general. I mean the immigrants on the border. I mean trans rights. I, I mean all of it. You know, mm-hmm. I think that there are still so many ways that. If you're not a member of the immediate group, like it's hard to get people mobilized. We're exhausted, you know, as a country, I think a lot of mm-hmm. us, and the more that we can look more inwardly at ourselves and understand like our place in things, like not seeing it as like, here are all these special interest groups I have to work to defend. But rather, these are the people that make up the fabric of our country. And we need to figure out how to manage, you know, a president who is attacking them, but also like a lot of the people who are a little bit more not immediately threatened, need to feel like an investment in the future of this country for us to actually be able to get out of the mess we're in. Well, on that note, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in, Thomas. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thomas Page McBee's book, Amateur, The True Story About What Makes a Man, is out now.
3: And you can read Ludo's piece on how to make it as a rapper at ft.com. And you can also find music by Mutual Sounds online.
0: Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast or by email at ft.com.
3: And if you like what you hear, please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people discover us.
0: Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayers.
3: We've been Grizzanal.
0: And our music is composed by Fatten.